0: specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Am I going to be okay? The question, not explicitly about money, is posed by most people that I meet, from the ultra-wealthy to the just-getting-by from the retiree to the just getting started. No matter the lifestyle, accent, politics, or favorite sports team, everyone I meet wants to take care of their families, be generous to others, and excel in their careers. These words set the stage for Brian Portnoy's book, The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. These remarks also set the foundation for my conversation with Brian, which also included key thoughts and takeaways from his latest book, How I Invest My Money. Brian and I discuss experienced happiness, which comes and goes, versus reflective happiness, which requires work. I strongly encourage you to give Brian's books a read and be sure to check out the other resources we discussed during our talk. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Portnoy. Where I wanted to first start, Brian, was how I got introduced to you actually through your book, The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. Early in the book, you said, no matter the lifestyle, accent, politics, or favorite sports team, everyone I meet wants to take care of their families, remain or get healthy, be generous to others, enjoy their hobbies, and excel at work. And then you go on to further say, all these concerns are connected to the biggest question of all, am I going to be okay? The question not explicitly about money, but one which stubbornly sits in the shadows is posed by everyone, from the ultra wealthy to the just getting by, from the retiree to the just getting started. That's really is a great lead into our conversation and to really kind of talk about technically your second book, The Geometry of Wealth. When I read that, and when I was going through my notes last night and prep for our, our conversation, the book to me just really focuses on overall this mindset shift that you're trying to get people to be aware of. So let me just turn it over to you and have you take it from there.
2: I had spent a long time at that point when I was writing the book, 16, 17 years deep in the investment world, chartered financial analyst, a good decade plus in the hedge fund industry, evaluating and investing in pretty complicated strategies all over the world. The geometry of wealth was sort of my break from the minutiae and the technical elements of investing to step way, way back and reflect on money as a part of our lives that is just not our portfolios. In fact, the portfolio and the investment philosophy is a relatively minor piece but trying to understand, partly for professional reasons, but also for personal reasons. I'm a guy like anybody else trying to figure things out the ways in which money influences how we interact with the world, how we interact with other people. And you don't even need to dig very deeply to recognize what an emotional topic this is. Just looking at the history of money going back only five or 6,000 years. It's just not the technical stuff that we learn in eighth grade, means of exchange, unit of account, store of value. It's also a conduit for how we interact with others, how we trust people, and in no small part, how we see ourselves from a perspective of status, self-worth, and things like that. So that passage you read, which is sort of from the beginning of the book, I wrote that in 2017, and my memory's not so good. I just wanted to set the table for a real conversation about those sorts of topics.
1: You talk a lot about in the book, money life and a meaningful life. One of the things that you've become known as is this statement or belief of funded contentment. And I don't want to go there yet, but in the book you really focus on the money life versus the meaningful life in it. You use the circle triangle and square can you go through which each of those means in your eyes as you were putting the book together?
2: Let's introduce funded contentment because the shapes, so to speak, the geometry of wealth is sort of the path toward funded contentment. So we could dig deeper on it, but I'll just sort of put a plug in for now, which is that I make a distinction between being rich versus being wealthy. Rich is the quest for more, which is often unsatisfying for deep Neurological, psychological reasons. Wealthy is the ability to afford a life that's meaningful to you. That is very subjective in its formulation. And I kind of capture that just with this phrase, funded contentment. And how do you achieve that? Or at least how do you work toward it and maybe achieve it for a bit of time before it fades away and you have to sort of recapture it? There's three steps. The first is to to define your purpose in life, what's meaningful to you. The second step is setting priorities, both financial and non-financial. And the third is making decisions, the sort of tactical bottom-up, lots of different dimensions to money life, like saving and spending and borrowing, as well as investing. And there is sort of a flow between purpose, priorities and decisions that I set out. And one thing I did was try to capture that just through some very basic graphics the geometry of wealth, circle, triangle, square, purpose, priorities, decisions. Purpose is a circle because we're always figuring it out. It's a round world. Who you think you are in your 20s probably isn't who you realize you are in your 30s. And then when you get into your 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, at a certain point, you realize, oh, wait, this merry-go-round doesn't stop. doesn't mean that you don't have principles or values or firm beliefs. At the same time, who we are in a noisy world is something that many of us are trying to figure out the reason why the second stage priorities is a triangle is that there's three parts to it and at a high level our priorities are that number one we protect ourselves from an evolutionary point of view we survive before we thrive step one protect step two is what i call match which is just finding balance in life, both non-financially, but then financially in terms of our balance sheet, our assets and our liabilities. But also we have emotional non-financial assets and liabilities that we want to keep in balance as well. And then the third part of the triangle is that top part, that aspirational part, that reach. And then the square is four sides With investments in particular, I think there's four specific things that people need to do to set and manage expectations properly. I'm a big believer that simplification is a powerful and good thing to strive for. And look, there's a ton of detail and so many different branches to go down. But if you can say that wealthy is not rich, and what wealthy is, is the ability to underwrite a meaningful life. And that there are three steps of doing that, purpose, priorities, decisions, and you can capture that in three basic geometric shapes. All of a sudden, you've planted in people's minds something that they can actually keep straight. And if they want to dive into any particular dimension, that's great. You need to because that top level barely captures anything. One thing our industry doesn't do very well is respect the consumer, respect the client. We tend to deliver tons of technical detail that no one really understands, including the person who's speaking it. And we engage in this ridiculous theater of finance professor and finance student in a financial advice context when the teacher isn't really teaching and the student's not really a student, but everyone's sort of doing what they think they should do. And those conversations are just not productive. In fact, they might even be counterproductive. So what I'm trying to do, my sense of what you're trying to do in your practice, the FinTwit community that we sort of live in of coaches and educators and advisors is to bring forth simplified ideas that allow people to get going in the right direction.
1: Going back to one of the things that you just touched on, you used the term emotional balance, I think. The first time I had heard that kind of expression was actually through Carl Richards, who did an amazing job on yours and Josh's latest book, How I Invest My Money. Carl had written this article about how to quantify hard decisions, and he called it emotional balance sheet. Carl, if you're listening to this, a few years later, I stole it. Now it's the title of our podcast now, The Emotional Balance Sheet. But for me, Carl was specifically talking about a husband and wife or a partnership trying to decide if one spouse should stay home or not. And that was, at the time, something that my wife, Teresa, and I were really trying to reconcile, should one of us stay home? And so that emotional balance sheet always resonated with me because you have your assets, but... You have all this emotional balance sheet and liabilities as well. And how do we manage that? How do we prioritize those other things in life that are more non-financial than financial? You're actually one of the springboards that two years ago when I first read your book, that really propelled me to shift how I was working with my families and getting them to talk more openly about their purpose, their priorities, and how to make decisions. It's been a real pivot over the last three years. And one thing I'm really proud of, I'm working with my families. And I owe a lot of that to people like you and to Carl and to Michael Kitsis. I can't thank you guys enough for the work that you've done and the leadership that you've provided within the financial community and trying to make this shift.
2: A couple quick things. Number one, thank you. That's really meaningful to me. The work I'm doing now is is a true passion of mine. I'm in my early 50s and what I'm doing now, I really am bringing together my favorite stuff from the last 30 years. So the fact that it makes an impact in the world, it just means a lot. Two, Carl's been an inspiration to me. He knows that. We just wrote this book together. And so that was a thrill for my entire career. And then three, just thinking out loud about the supply and demand in the financial advice business for what you're providing and at a different part of the food chain what i'm providing because i do think historically financial advisors were kind of straight down the middle of the fairway in terms of building an appropriate portfolio that's appropriate to someone's tolerance and objectives and time horizon and all that kind of stuff if you don't mind me posing a question out loud As you build your practice based on these ideas, like an emotional balance sheet, do you sense that that's something that people wanted to have talked about for a long time and you're giving them permission? Or is it awkward for some where they're like, hey, dude, you're not my therapist. Can you just make me more money? How is it going for you?
1: That's a great question. And I've wrestled with that over the years and... I've come to the point where when I'm meeting with people, whether they're new family office prospects or existing family office clients, I'm very forward in saying, Look, our relationship is more than just about money. I'm going to want to get into your personal life. I'm going to want to know basically what makes you tick and trying to, again, figure out what you want and not in a financial way. Most people, when they get to me, it's because of some life transition. Maybe they lost a the job, had a baby. Moved, And I think people underestimate the amount of life transitions that they go through and how often they occur. But it's something that some people are more receptive than others. And that's what I'm still trying to figure out is how to make sure that I'm going about this in a way that makes people comfortable to where they're open to sharing. And I have families that that's not what they want. That's not what they signed up for. And that's okay. I can still provide them value and help them with their needs and service them. Others are fully on board. Three years later into this, it's still more of a balancing act that I'm still trying to figure out. But as I move my practice forward and meeting new people, I'm very much at the forefront of saying, look, Tama, my family office is more than just putting together your portfolio or putting together a 25-page wealth management plan. Even though I do come back and summarize it, I do create a one-page plan for people, especially when they get into heated discussions about what they should be doing. It's more than that. People see the value in that and view me as an extension of their family. And when I use the term family office, when I say the word Tama, most of my audience knows what Tama means, but it's Teresa, Aiden, Madison, Mackenzie, and Andrew. It's literally my family. And so that's the type of environment that I'm striving to create is this family where the people I work with, I'm a part of their family and they're a part of my family. One of the two things that you talk about in the book as well is what you refer to as experienced happiness and reflective happiness you want to touch on that one? There's this big picture question
2: that I think everyone grapples with, which is, does money buy happiness? And this question has been asked for millennia, going back thousands of years. The question's probably as front and center today as it's ever been for a bunch of reasons that we don't need to get into, but we're sort of in an era where individual happiness is a really big deal. Arguably, it wasn't as big of a deal many many years ago but there's certainly kind of a culture and even a cult of happiness that affects all of us to the narrower question of whether more money creates more happiness if you review the science behind this social psychology and, and other disciplines a lot of the answer depends on how you define happiness which that's fine to say and you go to the thesaurus and there's like 19 different words for happiness that can become a real mess trying to sort through all of that. So what I did in the book and the way I think about this generally is I coach advisors and their clients is just to say, well, let's just focus on two forms of happiness. One is sort of the day-to-day good mood, bad mood. That's what I call experienced happiness. Just going back 2,400 years, with Aristotle and the hedonists and others debating what the good life is, the hedonists Basically believe that happiness is captured by having more pleasure and less pain. And that's totally fine. You could not even have to treat that in a value laden way. You could just say that that's one definition of happiness, which is more pleasure. But then there's this other form of happiness and it's reflected partly in our brain chemistry, which is what I call reflective happiness, this deeper sense of meaning. I sometimes call it the step back. Every now and then you step back and you say, is this the life I want? Is there something better for me and ones that I truly love? That distinction between the day-to-day, hey, I'm feeling pretty good versus I just stepped on a thumbtack type, am I happy or sad right now? Versus I have a broader sense of meaning in my life that I can really tap into, and that's a super positive source of energy for me. That's the distinction between experience and reflective happiness. And then that, in turn, maps differently onto our relationship with Mark.
1: I think that ties back into how we started our conversation. And one thing that I've strived to do is try to help people figure out what enough is. Trying to define what that is is very, very hard because... One of the other things that you touched on in the book that I highlighted, and I get this from Michael Kitsis often, is that we are horrible at forecasting our goals and what makes us happy. And to me, I see that in my own life, in the lives of the 50 families that I work with currently, is it changes. I've seen people that I started working with that are, call it in that new and growing family segment, to now they're in the empty nester world. Their kids are grown in college. I've seen that change and that development from one stage of life to another, and through heartaches and tragedies and triumphs and celebrations, it's always a moving target. And so that's when I come back to helping people. And to your point, setting priorities. I know you touched on this in the book as well. Is that it's not just and or 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 black and white. It's more of a range. And that's why I try to get people to think about is think of it as a range and not just a singular bullet point, if you will.
2: One of the big challenges to the financial advice business is that it's loosely framed nowadays in terms of achieving goals without there being much critical thought as to what a goal is, how do you achieve it, what's supposed to happen when you achieve that goal or fail to meet that goal. There are some core principles in social psychology like effective forecasting and hedonic adaptation, which are basically fancy ways of saying, number one, we're terrible at predicting what's going to make us happy or sad in the future. And number two, when we achieve the things that we think are going to make us happy, we tend to be less happy for a shorter period of time than we would have predicted. It's a really good development that our industry over the last 15 to 20 years has evolved somewhat, not nearly enough, but somewhat away from beating the market, just having a bigger portfolio to actually achieving goals. And there's some very core things that affect all of us in our life cycle, retirement, kids, homes, those are the really big ticket items. And of course, you want to map your earning and your saving and your spending and your portfolio, and ultimately your cash flows in order to be able to achieve those goals. That's totally fine. That's become a somewhat commoditized Practice doesn't mean everyone's going to work with Vanguard Advisory Services. Most people are quite satisfied with their advisors, and most advisors retain their clients over long periods of time. But the fact is that there is another level at which, and it sounds like you're doing it, and, and others we know are doing it, where this is beyond, okay, I need a certain number to retire at age 62, and instead ask, well, can I afford the life that I want? Am I going to be okay? Big picture questions like that that require a more qualitative and subjective treatment of what it is you're getting at. And one thing I've begun to say over the last few months, as I think about some various things, is that more is a number and enough is a mindset. And it's not that more is bad. More is good. Growth is good. I'd rather have $2 million than $1 million, all else equal. But it's easy to quantify and you can sort of issue a report card on whether or not you have more. The psychological meaning of more is totally fraught and doesn't make us nearly as happy as we think it does, but whatever. You can say that two is greater than one and move on. Enough is not something that's quantifiable. It's something that you have to calibrate or find alignment with relative to what's important to you. And I think the modern advisor's ability to help their clients calibrate what counts as enough is an absolutely wonderful plateau to reach, having those conversations. There's hard-nosed financial planning underneath that achievement of quote-unquote enough. And just like the circle in the geometry of wealth, the purpose piece goes in around and around, enough is not a stable target. It's shifting, it morphs, it's an amoeba, which is frustrating, but hey, that's life the advisor's ability to be engaged, not just with their direct client, but with the generations that are implicated by the work with that specific client, whether it be the parents, the adult children, the grandkids, whatever the framework is, that ability to navigate enough, both technically, but also philosophically, even theologically, super important. It's an area where the industry needs to improve.
1: I want to go back to, One last topic on the geometry, well, before we move forward to your new book that you just actually touched on was mindset. And I know that you had a research in your book from Carol Dweck, who's leading expert mindset. She's great. I read a lot of her work as well. And ironically, I was just having a conversation. It'll be episode 14 with Mike and Lindsay Dillon, who are clients of mine. Mike is associate professor at a university and Lindsay is a PA. And they ended up with over like $200,000 of debt, mainly student loan debt to get through their graduate programs. And talking with them, they came to the realization one day where like they needed to make a change because they had no idea how they were going to pay off all this debt. And the one thing that Lindsay always came back to is just like, we sat together, me and Mike, and we talked about it and we went through a two-step process. But before they even got to that two-step process, which was A, figuring out where they were And then B figuring out a spending plan to go forward, they had to have a mindset shift. And I kind of pressed Lindsay on that because that's what people want to know. People want to know like how to change their mindset. And the research that you did through the book and your other work, can you enlighten us on how people go through this mind shift that can propel them from the depths of despair, if you will, to get them to the other side where they say, okay, I know that I need to do this. I'm bought in. A lot of things I focus on is trying to understand people's why. And when I can understand people's why, and they can as well, then they can buy into the work that we're trying to do together.
2: Life is a gift. And we have the opportunity to write our own story however we'd like. And yes, there are constraints and sometimes just insurmountable roadblocks, but In the context of the type of financial planning that we're talking about, people have choices. People can take personal responsibility. They are authors of their own story and editors. I don't have a pithy answer for how you change mindset. There's certainly plenty of great wisdom out there in terms of habits and habit formation and leaving aside the connection between habit and mindset. I think there are ways to restructure your lives, to create incentives or disincentives for good or bad behavior or conduct or attitudes. And that's a whole conversation. And people like James Clear and Atomic Habits, I mean, just, I think it's a brilliant book and just beautifully written and really good in that regard. But maybe I'll answer the question just with the word permission. I think because money is such a difficult topic for deep-seated emotional reasons, I think one of the values that financial advisors or planners or coaches can provide to their clientele is to give them permission to go there, to explore these issues. Why is this tough? What is the problem? And not just at the level of, oh, I've got 100000 in debt and the interest rate is this and the schedule. Okay, that is a problem. And it's a problem that you can plug into a spreadsheet and try to solve it. But there are layers of depth to the problem in terms of how you got there and giving clients permission in one way or another in whatever personal style makes sense for you and for them to begin to dig in as to why did they end up in the situation they did and not just from a oh i have much debt but even i have a lot of money now and where is the gratitude and gratefulness for how you ended up in that spot all of that is on the table with modern financial advice but it doesn't just happen. It has to be delivered to the client in a way that makes sense for them.
1: I realize that was a pretty loaded question, but that's in trying to help people figure out what enough is. That's a question that I've been struggling to help people answer is how exactly they change that mindset. And I think what you're talking about with habits, I know James Clear's book is great. Charles Duhigg is another great one in this field as well with habits. I think you did a great job there in summarizing and giving people permission. What I worry about with people that are paralyzed by the fear of the unknown and they don't reach out to somebody because they don't necessarily know where to start or how to think about that or give themselves permission... That's something I think everybody in the advisor field is trying to figure out is how to help people get over that fear because that's usually the step that prevents them from talking to any advisor, whether it's myself or Josh Brown or somebody at Ritholtz. It doesn't matter. It's always taking that first step is the hardest and the most challenging.
2: And you're the expert. There's practical technical issues with regard to saving and spending and debt and lots and lots and lots of endless detail. We can talk at a high level about meaning and purpose, but financial planning per se is a very specific set of skills that relate to investment selection and asset location and tax planning. And that's super important. And part of the bigger picture questions about how much is enough and one notch more specific than that in terms of do I have too much or too little debt or those kind of things, those stem from a series of practical skills and tools that you've acquired that then you deliver to your client. And part of the value is being able to explain to the client what all of these things are. Number one, people don't know as much. And number two, maybe more importantly, they don't really care. And for as much as we find all of this, I think fascinating, I have to accept that most people just don't care nearly as much as I do about the things that I care about.
1: I think that goes back to the question you would ask me is, there are people that I meet that just are not interested. They want the bare bones basic, if you will, and that's okay. But I think there's a whole nother level of value that an advisor can provide. That's a good segment into pivoting to your new book with Josh Brown. How I Invest My Money. So if you can give us a little backdrop about the book, how you and Josh ended up getting together. And then I think it's a great story of how you pulled in Carl Richards as well to do the graphics. Josh
2: was a prolific writer and a smart guy and an industry leader and industry critic. He wrote and he blogs. He's blogged every day for 10 plus years or something. He wrote a piece in the summer of 2019 called How I Invest My Own Money. And it was very direct speaking about the stocks he owns and where he's at with his mortgage and some of the priorities that are relevant to him and his family. Lives in New York, wife, two younger kids, and we're friendly. So I just reached out and said, Hey, I thought this was great. And we got to chatting and quickly acknowledged that it would be a great book project to get together a bunch of friends and peers from the industry who are money people, they're financial advisors or portfolio managers, but generally have some background and expertise in investing or personal finance for people to tell their own stories because we've got countless market wizards type books where fancy pants portfolio managers can tell you how they've conquered the world and delivered fantastic results and made killer trades and all that kind of stuff. But Almost never do we see financial experts of any kind saying, this is what I do, and these are some of the mistakes that I've made, and here's some of the good things that I've done in order to align my money life with the life that my family and I want to lead. So we were pretty quickly able to get a book contract, and one of the first people we invited to the project was Carl, who, as we've said many times, just sort of industry leader and inspiration to many. At first, he was going to contribute a chapter and then decided he didn't want to. And then he decided he was just gonna do one of his famous sketches for his chapter. And I said, great, until he decided he didn't want to. And then came back a third time and said, I was thinking about it, maybe I'll just read everybody's chapter and do a sketch that captures their idea. And I'm like, well, number one, awesome. Number two, you know that's 25 times more work than what we've asked you. And he's like, yeah, that's okay. What we ended up with, and the book came out in November of 2020, was 25 essays, me, Josh, and 23 others, each about four to five pages. So very bite-sized, consumable chapters. Shouldn't take anyone more than 10 or 15 minutes to read any particular chapter. And we got people from all over the industry. It's a proud to say it's just a very diverse group of people from all different walks of life, older, younger men, women, people of color, just different diverse lifestyles some people grew up with money, some people grew up with nothing. So you just got a lot of different backstories there. I guess I had high expectations. Why wouldn't I? But it exceeded my high expectations in the sense that we didn't get anybody coming back with a spreadsheet and saying, here's my portfolio. What everyone came back with in one way or another was a really interesting personal story about who they are and where money fits into that path toward leading a meaningful life. So to this notion of funded contentment, we've talked about it a couple of times, it was always going to be called How I Invest My Money, but an alternative title would be something like Funding Contentment, because what everybody did over these 25 five-page chapters was basically say, this is kind of who I am and what's important to me, and these are some of the investments and saving and spending and borrowing decisions I've made in order to underwrite that life that I want.
1: You and Josh had a webinar or open forum where you had Christine Benz and Morgan Housel on as well. And those are two people I really admire in the industry. Morgan is a prolific writer as well. And Christine has just been a rock at Morningstar for so long. One last question on the book is if you could take away one or two things from it that you maybe learned or gleamed from other people's story that would really worth sharing for the audience, what would one or two of those topics be?
2: Probably the two things I'd flag are that first, there's no one right way to run your finances, but there probably is a right way in light of who you are, what you want to do, what you want to accomplish. So there's an orthodoxy out there that you could find in finance textbooks. You don't need to apply the orthodoxy from the University of Chicago economics department in order to manage your finances Um quote unquote properly. And the second thing I really want to emphasize is that money is an expression of our values and our identity. And if we don't acknowledge or at some point lose sight of that fact, we're leaving something really important on the table. Back to that notion that more is a number while enough is a mindset. I think we're all struggling and striving for achieving enough in life because you ain't taking it with you. So what do you want to do along the way? That mindset, leaving aside the role or value of financial advice, just you in your own head or with your partner or your parents or your kids or your community, recognizing that money is an inescapable part of life. It's neither holy nor profane. It's just part of our daily existence and appreciating that it's okay to go there to ask, what are my values? Who do I want to be? What do I want to achieve? And then how does money fit into it? And I would contrast that a little bit with what I think some or many people do, which is make the assumption that if you have more money, you have more options, you can solve more problems. And if you've asked it in that reverse, and I would argue wrong order, you end up kind of raising a whole host of other issues and questions that are just problems that you'll then need to address, as opposed to asking first, what's important? What values are you trying to live? And then getting into your money stuff.
1: I think that it's a good lead into my final question. And we've talked about this a lot, high level throughout our discussion is family. And I know that you have three kids. And so my closing question that I ask everyone is, what is the best thing about being a parent or the thing that you love most about being a parent? I
2: just love my kids. Ben is 18. Zach is 16. Sarah's 14. And they're growing up into really nice, good people. Fair to say my wife gets more credit for the good stuff than I do. I just like being alongside them as they navigate and figure out this weird, messed up, noisy world. Like every kid these days. They're completely plugged in. So they see and experience a lot more than I did and the generation before that and the generation before that. And that's not one of these good old days. Oh, it used to be better. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'd say that my kids and their generation, they're being asked to process a lot of stuff. And some of it, Tracy and I, we can parent mentor, counsel, instruct, scold, reward, you name it. But part of it is just sort of being around and watching them make friends, learn things. It's just awesome. They're not perfect. We don't put them on a pedestal, but I really like the people that they're turning into and I can't wait to see what happens next.
1: That's awesome. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. Brian, I always enjoy talking to you and getting to know you over the last year. For me, it goes beyond that because reading your work and your book, I feel like I've known you for a long time. I can't thank you enough for the time and being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. We'll look forward to your new work to come.
2: I appreciate that. It's been fun getting to know you over this past year. You're one of the guys who's doing good work so I can wish you nothing but the best because it's important work in noisy, dangerous times.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit tamacapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.